Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Rehospitalization affects the quality of life of persons with mental health and addiction needs, as well as the efficiency of the health system. The purpose of this study was to understand admission characteristics predictive of rehospitalization and develop an indicator to inform care planning decision-making. The study examined a variety of administrative, demographic, and clinical variables present among over 50,000 patients assessed in inpatient mental health settings in Ontario, Canada. On the basis of predictive models, prior hospitalizations, symptoms of psychosis, risk of harm to self, secondary substance use diagnosis, and being unemployed, significantly predicted rehospitalization within 90 days of a prior psychiatric discharge. These variables were used to create a three-level indicator to support care plan decision-making called the Rehospitalization Clinical Assessment Protocol. By one year after discharge, 30% of those at the highest risk and 18% at the lowest level of the rehospitalization clinical assessment protocol had been rehospitalized. Perlman and colleagues discuss how the rehospitalization clinical assessment protocol, as part of the interi mental health assessment system, may be a useful tool for supporting care plan decision making at the point of admission. More broadly, the findings of this study call for further inquiry into how care practices, system structures, and socio-environmental factors may influence rehospitalization. While clinical characteristics of patients may predispose them to risk for rehospitalization, the mediation or moderation of risk may rest on the availability of a supportive and coordinative health system. This study was part of a larger study funded by the Primary Healthcare Transition Fund of the Canadian-Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Polypharmacy is an all-too-common clinical phenomenon, especially among psychiatric patients. Unfortunately, the prescription of multiple psychoactive agents in the name of clinical effectiveness can be associated with unintended harm, such as adverse drug-drug interactions. The challenges of managing polypharmacy are further compounded in the context of borderline personality disorder, in light of impulsivity and self-harm associated with the illness itself. In this continuing medical education offering, Madden and colleagues detail a significant reduction in polypharmacy and improved clinical status in a woman with borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, and multiple poorly managed chronic medical conditions after an extended psychiatric hospitalization. During the course of her 56-day hospitalization, the patient tolerated a taper in her impressive 21 medication regimen at admission to 
12 medications at discharge, representing a 43% reduction in absolute medication burden. Reduced polypharmacy occurred within the context of symptomatic improvement, including reduced depressive, anxious, and somatic complaints, as well as improved general well-being at discharge. Of note, the patient maintained these treatment gains up to 24 weeks after her hospitalization. The patient described is not unique and is a frequent consequence of 15 to 30-minute outpatient medication checks and three to five-day hospital stays. Despite good intentions, polypharmacy can be associated with iatrogenic harm and contribute to functional impairment, especially in the context of borderline personality disorder in which symptomatic fluctuations are part of the illness itself. A reduction in patients' high-risk polypharmacy during treatment may represent a noteworthy treatment outcome in and of itself. This research was partially supported by the Menninger Clinic Foundation and McNair Medical Institute. Dr. Madden is a McNair scholar. Major depressive disorder is an often chronic condition with symptoms that can recur over time. Because relapse is common in the first six months after recovery from a depressive episode, a successful acute phase treatment regimen should be continued for four to nine months after symptoms resolve. For some patients with recurrent depression, longer-term maintenance therapy may be needed. The objective of this study by Boyer and colleagues is to describe the antidepressant response of patients receiving desvenlafaxine 50 mg per day versus placebo in an 11-month randomized withdrawal study. Adult outpatients with major depressive disorder who responded to eight weeks of open-label desvenlafaxine 50 mg a day and had a continuing stable response through week 20 were randomly assigned to receive placebo or desvenlafaxine 50 mg a day in a six-month, double-blind, randomized withdrawal period. The trial was conducted from June 2009 to March 2011 at 87 study sites in 14 countries worldwide. Antidepressant efficacy was maintained for patients who continued treatment with desvenlafaxine 50 mg a day for an additional six months after achieving a stable response, whereas patients assigned placebo showed a worsening of depressive symptoms. Desvenlafaxine 50 mg a day maintained patient functioning at significantly higher levels compared with placebo treatment during the six-month double-blind period. Randomized withdrawal studies for antidepressant drugs frequently demonstrate efficacy as measured by relapse rates versus placebo control. Patients who do not relapse after response to treatment for major depressive disorder may suffer residual symptoms. Assessing depressive symptoms and patient functioning during continued treatment can help to address the question, how are the patients who are maintained on long-term basis with the chosen treatment actually doing? This study was sponsored by Pfizer. Selective immunoglobulin M immunodeficiency 
is characterized by a selective low level of immunoglobulin M in conjunction with normal T-cell numbers and function and no other identifiable immunodeficiency. It can be associated with immunosuppressive treatments, including clozapine. This study investigated the presence of selective immunoglobulin M immunodeficiency among long-term clozapine-treated outpatients in a nested case control study. The authors found a statistical association between clozapine use and the presence of selective immunoglobulin M immunodeficiency. They recommend that healthcare professionals be vigilant with regard to the presence of this condition among clozapine-treated patients, as those affected require careful monitoring for infection and autoimmune diseases. Clinicians also should pay particular attention to granulocyte counts and patterns of immunoglobulin M decline. The Institute of Mental Health is the only tertiary psychiatric hospital in Singapore with approximately 2,000 inpatient beds. A 23-hour observation unit was started within the emergency room in 2007. This study examined healthcare utilization and clinical outcome of patients who were admitted to the observation unit from 2007 to 2012. The authors hypothesized that a specific clinical profile characterized by greater clinical severity and lower level of psychosocial functioning predicted subsequent hospitalization. The medical records of 2,158 patients admitted to the observation unit were assessed. The clinical severity and level of psychosocial functioning were assessed using clinical global impression severity and global assessment of functioning scales, respectively. Overall, the patients were predominantly Chinese males over 36 years old, with diagnoses including stress-related, anxiety, affective spectrum, and psychotic conditions. The clinical severity scores improved significantly following discharge from the observation unit. Self-referred older patients with past psychiatric history, lower functioning, and less improvement of clinical severity scores were associated with subsequent hospitalizations. The study findings support the utility of the observation unit in monitoring the overall clinical status of patients, which was linked with subsequent inpatient hospitalization. Better management of these patients at the outpatient level can potentially decrease unnecessary hospitalizations, healthcare costs, and illness burden on patients and caregivers. This study investigated whether three different dose initiation strategies with philazidone are safe and effective in treating major depressive disorder. This eight-week randomized double-blind parallel group three-arm trial compared velazidone 10 mg a day, 20 mg a day, and 40 mg a day as starting doses. Data were collected from December 2012 to December 2013. There was no washout phase, prior medications were stopped at the baseline visit, and velazidone was started the next day in adults with major depressive disorder. The 10 mg a day and 20 mg a day dose was increased to 
40 milligrams a day by week three and week one, respectively, and the 40 milligram a day initiation dose continued unchanged. The primary efficacy measure was change in the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale score between the three dose groups. The secondary efficacy measures were changes in clinical global impression severity and improvement and Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale scores. Safety measures were obtained by spontaneously reported adverse events vital signs recording, and laboratory tests. Sixty subjects completed the study with 20 subjects in each group. Overall, there was a significant reduction in Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale score from baseline to week eight in the entire sample. Similarly, there was a significant improvement in the three secondary efficacy measures from baseline to the end of the trial. There were no significant differences between the three velazidone dose initiation groups in changes in the primary or secondary efficacy measures. Although the study proved beneficial, almost all patients experienced dry mouth as a potential side effect in dose increment, 5% of subjects experienced diarrhea with dose increment, and nearly 43% of subjects had sexual side effects. The present study indicates the potential benefit and tolerability of velazidone in treatment of major depressive disorder, but further studies are needed to explore the potential side effects. This study was supported by Forest Laboratories through an investigator-initiated award. The strongest association between ophthalmologic disorders and psychiatry is depression. It has been shown that vision loss can nearly double the risk of depression. A number of conditions, such as age-related macular degeneration, cataracts, and primary open-angle glaucoma, or any type of visual loss, have been associated with depression. With the aid of this review article, primary care physicians, ophthalmologists, and psychiatrists can become more familiar with the psychiatric challenges faced by elderly individuals with impaired vision and initiate appropriate interventions. In the future, primary care physicians and psychiatrists should play a significant role in the assessment and treatment of depression in visually impaired patients. Have you ever disliked or been repulsed by a patient whom you have just met? Did he or she seem obnoxious, pompous, or entitled? Have you been amazed or embarrassed by how much hatred you felt? Have you ever worried that your negative feelings might adversely influence your management of his or her medical problems? If you have, then the article from this issue's rounds in the general hospital section should prove useful when confronted with a narcissistic patient. Understanding what drives narcissistic behavior, coupled with an awareness of the feelings typically evoked when treating these patients, will allow practitioners to better manage narcissistic individuals. As publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. 
The CNS Job Market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both job candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified health care professionals. Just as you rely on the primary care companion for CNS disorders for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, advanced searching, social media integration, and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com, where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. We are excited to offer a digital flip page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our digital journal as we think you will like it. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as many timely case reports, a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.